0: Welcome to the Open Talent Report, the award winning podcast where we dive deep into the emerging trends in global employment, the future of work, the talent crisis, the demographic deficit, and the new world of work with our expert host, Connor Heaney. Connor is the managing director at CXC Global EMEA, a company that takes the hassle out of finding compliantly engaging and paying contractors anywhere in the world. In this podcast, Connor brings you captivating conversations with top CEOs, visionary founders, and industry experts. Together, they shed light on all things open talent and the evolving nature of work itself. So grab your headphones and join us on this exhilarating journey.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's show where I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Davenport. Tom is the Managing Director of Alvius, a leading technology company. Providing VMS and talent pooling technology solutions. I first had the opportunity to meet Tom in 2023. Enjoyable meeting, not that long ago at the time <laughs> of recording, uh, Tom, but a, a, fa- a fascinating meeting nonetheless. And I think, Tom, it's fair to say that you've got a, a really amazing platform that we can't wait to hear more on. But you've had a fascinating career to date. You've been, uh, I think, a, a two time or three time founder. Of course, we'll hear more about that in, mm-hmm. in a few moments. You, have been, you are a part time soldier. In um, Her Majesty's Forces, and of course, you've you've got a, a background in consulting with PwC, and of course, a, in innovation with um, with the Tesco Group. So, Tom, a very
2: warm welcome to the show. How are you doing, my friend? Thank you. I'm I'm very well. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, very generous introduction. A few, a few. Um, minor corrections i I might make in fact i left i left the uh, army reserve last year so i'm no longer in that and i should also just point out that i am one of two managing directors at Alpheus, the other one being andrew my business partner who looks after the technology side of the business it's a it's a people commonly think it's just me but there's very much two of us and there couldn't be just one well that that's great
1: and tom thanks thanks for sharing that so Tom, I've given a very high level of your story, but what was your journey to becoming one of the two managing directors at Alveus? What, what's your story? Oh,
2: thank you. Thank you. I think so specific there. Well, we—I um, started my career, as you alluded to there, in um, in in the consulting industry with PwC, and in in specifically in financial services. But I think I always probably wanted to be an entrepreneur of some sort. I don't. I don't think necessarily in the for-profit sector. Specifically, but I like starting stuff. I like starting stuff and making things that wouldn't otherwise have existed were it not for my my efforts. That's what really um excites me. And so, a, a short while into my my career in uh, in consulting, I had this idea for a business which I think you know, on balance, probably wasn't a particularly innovative or great idea. Uh, but uh, it was something that I at that point decided to pursue nonetheless, and. The other factor, of course, was that my now colleague, who I mentioned earlier, Andrew, was was a was a consultant uh, with me in another team, but also, also at PwC. So we ended up teaming up and um, created this business, which was called initially Talent Pool. It went on to be called Feisty subsequently. And that was the beginning of my sort of proper entrepreneurial journey. I had started and in fact sold another small business um, before that, but um, this was the first proper venture where we raised money and had a team and so on. And uh, yeah, that, that, that got me into the space where I am now, but by a kind of shall Should I tell the story of, of yeah. How yeah. that transition to, happened? Yeah, for sure. We'd love to hear it, Tom. So I, I, think it's, um, I think it's relevant probably to the discussion that I suspect we'll go on to have later on about you yeah. know, the, the, the utility of, of marketplaces and talent pools and direct sourcing and so on. But the first idea we had, as the name suggests, talent pool, was wouldn't it be better if there was one place where loads of uh, employers could come and fish and um effectively you know, conglomerate together agglomerate their their buying power instead of all going out individually using you know recruiters to paying high fees and so on wouldn't wouldn't that make a lot of sense and so the the name talent pool came from that, and we ran that uh business. I ran full time for sort of 5 years before stepping away another um leadership team took over um subsequently but while we were running that and and again we can go into the, the reasons why uh, ultimately it didn't work out as a business yeah and why um you know the marketplace model is is something that has immense power but only when when treated or delivered properly or or, or with very specific dynamics i should say while we were running that we we had an uh, an out-of-the-blue email from a company that advises private sector businesses on dealing with the public sector. Yeah. And ESPO, the Eastern Shires Purchasing Organization, which you may be familiar with, uh, I don't know, your your listeners may also be, uh, had launched a framework which for the first time was seeking to appoint, or identify at a point, suppliers of what they called, quote, talent pool technology. Uh, and at that point, if you Google talent pool technology, we were the first on the list so we got this inbound email saying are you interested in um in this framework this public sector framework and um you know it's worth this vast amount of money and, and we're looking to appoint a number of suppliers um uh, or the government is and we'd love to advise you on the tender and we were like what's a framework what's a tender you know what, what does any of this mean <laughs> I, in fact i initially uh, just left the email alone and then uh, a few weeks later mentioned it to andrew and I said, of course, I've, uh, I've, I've not really bothered with it. I don't think it's uh, really our area. And he said, uh, a what? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it's probably worth looking into that. Uh, and, and so, so we, uh, you know, we, we, we pursued that. And, and ultimately, we were appointed as one of, I think it was, five suppliers on that framework. And sort of by accident, as a result, we had, we had entered a space where the technology we'd built in the private sector for a large number, we had, I think, a 1,000 Clients in talent pool, i.e., small, they were all small um, businesses. Yes. Um, we trans- transitioned from that environment to one where we had a tiny number of clients, but with the same fundamental model, the same technology, doing the same kind of job. And suddenly everything started to fit in, start into place. It just made a lot more sense to be delivering pools when critically you had the supply of jobs assured. And I think the real challenge with the marketplace model, and we can, again, we can come to this in more detail, is that you do not want to be fighting the fire on both sides. So you do not want to be responsible for bringing in a supply of jobs and that being a really challenging thing to do, whilst also balancing it with a supply of candidates or job seekers um, at the same time. That makes it yes. really difficult. And it means you're constantly in this painful balancing act of there not being enough on one side or there being too much on one side and so on. Whereas when you are dealing with um, much, much larger organizations that have kind of authority and presence in the market and have a, a, a sort of guarantee of, of volumes coming through, you know you're going to have you know, 50, 100, 500, whatever it is, positions flowing into the pool over a certain time period. All you have to do then is ensure that there's liquidity in the pool <laughs> to satisfy that demand. And you're then really focused just on one side of the equation. And that makes it all so much easier uh, and so much more achievable. Anyway, that's the sort of potted uh, narrative on on how I got to, to the space we're in now and, and a few thoughts on, on the dynamic. Tom, if we, I, I just want to unpack a couple of things that you mm-hmm. covered then.
1: And we, of course, we, I'd like to look for the benefit of our audience and indeed for me at the problems and challenges that Alvea solves for. But really, I, I have two questions. The first is a relatively simple question, but I'd love your view on it because maybe the answer is not simple. In an era of talent pools, talent marketplaces, and new ways to, of, of hiring people through technology, why is it the case, in your view, that recruitment agencies and staffing agencies are still in
2: business? They persist. Isn't it fascinating? <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And um, estate agencies also persist. Yes. I, you know, pains me to say it, but, but um, I think a lot of the people who run these organizations are right when they say they're people businesses. Yes. Now, what they mean by that, of course, is quite nuanced. And uh, I think a lot of them may not be right about that. Ultimately, what it comes down to, I think, is that people don't comply. So you can create a wonderful process flow and a really elegant tech solution. But of course, when the candidate comes to stage three, they won't have their sodding CV. Yes. Or they'll enter the wrong bloody address, which means that, you know, in stage five, things don't add up. Or they'll get distracted and they'll go away. And there is nothing like another human on the end of the phone saying, oi, you haven't finished this, but I know you want to and you need to. Ha. Huh. <laughs> Can you get on with it, please? And that's <laughs> obviously quite a trivial example. But I mean that concept scales, I think. And um, yeah, I, I think it ultimately comes down to that. The other thing though, the other interesting dynamic at play that that I've seen is that the behavior of the market shifts with the development of the way the market's serviced. Yes. So what I mean by that is. Take, for example, an area that I'm not really involved with, but sort of senior level, mid to senior level executive search type recruitment. So long as there is an easier route for the candidate, the candidate will always seek that. And so long as they consider themselves to be a high value individual, they will always be looking for the sort of white glove um, service. Yes. So you know, even as the market shifts towards, look, we can make it much easier and we can do what we what, what you were doing before, but you can do it through a platform and there's actually more opportunities available to you there. If you do that, that will become the sort of mass market option and there will be a segment who will always wish to be on the kind of, you know, the, the, the Rolls-Royce side of that equation. And so they'll shift their behavior around whatever you try to supply. So if, no matter how much you try and shove everyone into a machine that's just rational and reasonable and logical, and churns out the matches and gets everyone the job they should be doing, no matter how much you try to do that, people will not comply. And uh, yes. that is that is the view I've come to over the years on this topic.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting way of looking at it, and I agree with it. I, I, I suppose I, I've often thought of the recruitment sector, I've, I've tried to compare it, I suppose, Tom, to 1980s and 1970s um, stock and futures trading, whereby... If you looked at the London Mercantile Exchange or the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange, it was typically based around what was called open outcry trading. You had basically these bull pits or bear pits of of screaming traders and order takers and market makers and all this different stuff. And then, of course, technology arrived in the 1980s and, and displaced those jobs. And there was, of course, a role for traders, but it was a very diminished role. And the machine essentially took over and has taken over actually around stop losses, Mm -hmm. around actually making trades, around intervening in the market. It's a very different world 30 or 40 years on. And when I was in staffing and recruitment myself, Tom, I often, I think I wrote a paper back in, actually it was was 2013, and the title of the paper was, When is recruitment's big bang going to be? And I thought it would be around uh, talent pools and talent market exchanges Mm -hmm. and things like that, but I think it's going to be a much more incremental approach uh, for change, Tom, because I I think for the reason you've mentioned and other reasons, the the other thing that comes to mind, Tom, that, that makes recruiters still relevant and still important for the end user client is, in my view, this simple. If you can control the candidate, you can control the market. And I don't mean control in some sort of Machiavellian or evil sense. I mean, you know that candidate, you know her or his preferences, likes, demands, requirements, wish list, uh, mm-hmm. salary requirements. And of course, a machine uh, can learn that and can pick that up, right? But mm. a machine does not um, have that capability as I best understand it. Of course, it can match a person with a job. Largely, some of the machine matching that I've seen has been quite good. And I was involved in a very early stage uh, machine learning matching uh, platform back in 2013 that went, uh, went belly up, unfortunately. A right. uh, right. uh, bit, bit too early, Tom. It strikes me that the recruiters have something that the machines and the talent pools don't have. And that's probably a database going back in some cases, 30 years, right? 20 years, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that database is constantly refreshed, right? That person, that candidate's constantly probably talked to if they're a hot candidate Mm -hmm. and they're engaged. Now, of course, that leaves the other 90% that um, might not be relevant that are just sitting in the database, right? You know, festering Uh over, but... But I always thought to myself, even as a recruiter, if you can control the candidate, you can control the market, right? You can send that candidate to you know, 10 different investment banks, if that's a sector, 10 different technology if companies, if that's a sector. You can build those relationships. And I, I think that's proven difficult uh, for some of the, the talent
2: technology providers. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. I think a sort of maybe another take on, on the same principle is to look at it from an economics perspective, which is... Yes, To say that, basically, technology solutions are fundamentally scalable fixed-cost machines. Yes. And people are not scalable variable-cost solutions. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that they're more flexible. Because in a downturn, the people just say, okay, well, I'm just taking less, te- less money home this month. Whereas the technology still needs to be ma- managed it still needs to be updated it still bugs still needs to be squashed you know edits still need to take place you can't just get rid of your dev team They're a fixed cost and the whole point of them is that is that at scale it really it really works out but without the scale it doesn't and the truth is that especially for the last you know time i've been in, in, in this sector the last eight, eight years or so it's like the dynamics flip every six months you know, you'd be telling your, your dev team to focus on candidate, candidate, candidate experience, all about the candidate. And then six months later, it's like the candidate is just not relevant. There are so many of them. It doesn't matter. It's all about the employer. It's all about the employer. It's all about the employer. <laughs> you know, and you're, and you're shifting your entire platform to address those um, shifts in the market. Uh, and those are quite big changes that you're, you're, you're building with a fixed cost base. And so you're just so much less flexible than a recruiter, and you know, who can react to small changes, and also, crucially, I should also add, just act to edge, respond to edge cases. Yes. Um, so, so you know that that is, um, yeah. There are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why the human person uh, has proved to be uh, amazingly resilient against um, all this technological firepower yes um but you know ultimately where i've got to on this on this subject is is that uh, the the answer is in a combination because we had what whilst the business wasn't successful we had some enormous successes uh at uh, talent pool and you know, well over a thousand people got jobs through the platform without any interaction with humans whatsoever yes and um you know done correctly done uh, in in uh, with with the, with the right dynamics with the wind blowing behind you, and everything set up properly, and then crucially with the right people around the system supporting uh, and interacting when they need to, um, there, there's an enormous um, enormous uh, ground to be gained. Uh, I think uh, with with that approach. So we're very much yes. on the uh, on the hybrid uh, hybrid school of thought at, at Alvis.
1: Yeah, in my experience in in the talent pool and space. Tom, I I think where talent pooling and direct sourcing or self sourcing through a a talent pool technology works really well is where there's there's volume and the scale to your earlier points, and and where there's a a repeatable job family or set of job families. I think it's it's actually perfect for that. But if you were to line up a a talent pool, an elegant talent pool uh, solution versus. You know, a recruiter working a specialist job, one job for Big Bank A, right? You know, it's probably quite likely the recruiter is going oh, yeah. to win every time. But I think yeah. you're probably, uh, we are probably guilty in the sector of comparing apples with um, oranges because, you know, talent pool is a enterprise type level solution in my view. You you know, you've got mm-hmm. the element, you've got payroll compliance, uh, independent contractor vetting all sorts of vetting that go along with it that to get the r- the right volume and and amount of um of, of candidates so yeah i i don't think they're they're truly comparable but it is fascinating to me that that uh the recruitment and staffing companies uh, albeit that a, a pretty rough year last year from a um earnings perspective are still at the size of 20 billion 25 billion 18 billion mm-hmm. 11 billion in uh <laughs> turnover and their market their mark their market, their market yeah. caps are pretty um, huge. But Tom, I, again, we will come on to all in a second, but I'm, I'm interested in your experience getting feisty that then became talent pool, I think, off the ground because, mm-hmm. listen, I, I've been in the startup and it's field, the startup field, right? We ran out of money because mm-hmm. here's the lesson I learned. Never rely on one investor for all your source of funds, right? Because yeah. they don't like it. They pull it and you're gone. You're out of business. And literally, yeah. we went out of business over a weekend and we were really successful Gosh. on the front front end, Tom. You know, we were getting in some of the biggest brands in the world We'd signed them up. We're bloody, oh, it was great. Yeah. It was so exci- It was so exciting. But that was lesson uh, number one. And listen, of course, I've been, f- I, I, unfortunately, I was fired then subsequently later in my career, Tom, and, and rightly so, yes. because I was re- really poor on the numbers when I was running the business. And I thankfully, of course, corrected. But, I suppose I'd, I'd love to hear your story, but I've also got a viewpoint on this. I think failure in the startup world has almost been fetishized, right? You know, the the Beckett mantra of try again, feel again, feel better. You know, mm-hmm. failure yeah. is an option, but I don't think it should be fetishized. I think it should be learned from because, listen, if you're not learning, you're not earning, right? But what what's your take on that? Do you think it's been fetishized? But also, I'd love to hear your story,
2: Tom, and tell what are your learnings from it? Well, that's a very interesting um, thesis. I mean, I'm sure in some areas it has been fetishized you know, there, 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 are, there are podcasts, aren't there, about, um, about failure uh, and where that's the a central theme. It's also the case, though, that I think uh, while people may post on social media or write articles about how wonderful failure is and, you know, in a, in a kind of um, social context may congratulate someone almost for a failure, I think privately we all feel, we all know that it's better not to fail. <laughs> You know, if we could choose, we wouldn't. Yes. If we could choose, we wouldn't. I agree. And you know, when when that nemesis of yours, uh, in a in a you know, the, your your someone you competed with in a, in a professional context, does have a failure, we don't in a world where um you know uh, it would be extraordinary to respond by by being annoyed because they had you know because the failure is actually a success. You know that 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 just doesn't. That's just that's just not how it works. I agree. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, uh, what I can say is that having had now got a failure under my belt, and it's, you know, it's, I sh- I'm very lucky in, the, in that actually the way that, that that failure happened was that we had spun that business, what the original business that, that then effectively yeah. pivoted into what is now Alvious, We spun the call it B2C business out of what is now Alvius. So in ah. fact uh, my shareholders in 2015 are my, share- my shareholders today and I'm still working to get a return for those same investors. Ah so I've not had to make any really painful calls to shareholders to say I've lost you money because I haven't. What I've done is I've grown the value of their investment by t- and then turned it into 2 and then returned it back turned it back into one. wow that's that's what I've actually done. So it was you know in that respect I swerved some of the some of the hardest bits of i think hard, hardest elements of, of failure but i have i have definitely noticed that whenever i've mentioned this especially in a, in a, in a professional context i i have received you know only kind of um supportive nods and, and even occasionally looks of uh, that imply to me that that person thinks that i therefore know what i'm talking about because i've been through <laughs> a, an insolvency uh yes. which you know and i it's partially true. There's a, there's a lot there's a lot that there's a lot to be learned from going through that process. Yeah. a lot, uh, uh, both um, you know, uh, in terms of resilience and and um, and the sort of mental experience, um, but also boringly just practically like it is really interesting to learn that when you enter technical insolvency your responsibility flips from your shareholders to your creditors. that was something i didn't know yeah. before uh, and that's that's something i now do know and that and that kind of stuff is actually really um, i find very interesting yeah so yeah i i, I think uh, i don't i i would just I would, my, I would respond to your question i think by saying i don't think if there are if there is an extent to which uh, failure is fetishized i don't think uh, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Cause I think it's a fringe issue. Um, yeah, I think right. that the center of gravity is still very much with I'd rather not fail.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, I, I <laughs> get
1: you. It's uh, yeah. it's one of those things. I think I, I've I've definitely learned from both uh, getting fired and and uh, failing in the in the startup world, um, Tom. It's probably something yeah. that I, I don't look back fondly on, but I definitely got some uh, yeah. good learn, learnings from it, that's for sure. But, Tom, yeah, we, we've had a number of uh, founders and serial founders on on the show previously. We had the, we had um, Salim Kaja, who's one of the co-founders at uh, WorkLama, who, who did mm-hmm. a really big raise last year, 50 million. Yep. We had uh, M- M- Matish from uh, WorkSum or one of the co-founders, rather, of have worked some on the show about uh, two years ago. We've, we've had a, a number of other startup and scale-up leaders on the show. We had Doug Leiby, who's been through a, a number of uh, <laughs> PE uh, mm-hmm. sales with uh, with his uh, leadership and CEO tenure at Beeline. But we've also had people on as well from the, the PE and VC side talking about what it's like to actually invest mm-hmm. in companies. But, Tom, just for the benefit of our audience, because some of them are in the, um, the founder community, what is the journey like, actually raising money? High, bloody hard, or indeed easy is it? Like, how do you go
2: about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a question I've been asked obviously a lot, of, a lot of times, uh, and indeed yes. I've also asked a lot of times. The first thing to say is there is no answer, there is <laughs> no solution, there is no silver bullet, there is no place you can go. I mean, I think I think people who work in large organisations think have this idea that there's a place you can go let's raise the money so you, you go to all the investors and you say this is what i want to do and then some of them back you like there is yeah. no such place right there there are <laughs> there, there are sorts <laughs> of places which function <laughs> a little bit like that but but not really yeah and you know even if you go to to 10 investors that have like you know a, a specialism in exactly the sector that you're you're entering uh and have a track record of investing in businesses just like yours, and you have 10 brilliant conversations with all of them, you'd be doing well to get one investment out of that. So, you know, it's, it's like, well, it is sales. Fundamentally, you are selling equity for cash, so it's sales. It's sim- as yeah. simple as that. And, of course, it's sales where it's very skewed towards a narrative. It's very skewed towards um, trust. I mean, hugely skewed towards the, the, the investor uh, needing to trust you. Uh, luck plays a massive massive role um there are sort of meta themes that come into play um so i think yeah the the most helpful thing genuinely is is to say you know if you're if you're going to fundraise you put on an extremely solid helmet every time you you go out of your house and you work on the with the baseline assumption that it's going to be extremely hard (laughs) and there is no single answer um so that's the first thing that kind of equips you mentally yeah. for for the experience. Good advice. Uh, but then but th- then the second point is just to like with all sales to think laterally. I mean think as to think as broad as you possibly can. It depends of course what kind of figure you're raising from what kind of investors and so on. But if you've been in business for a while, you'll probably have connections to prospective investors that you hadn't really thought of as yeah. connections to investors. You may even know investors that directly that that you hadn't realized and might become investors. So think about it, things very very, very broadly. And then the, the third thing I would say is target fifty one percent. So uh, what I mean by that is in fundraising, momentum is unbelievably important. I mean, if if you put me yeah. in charge of a of a say a massive you say um, work llama there, so say you put, say, say the person in charge of work llamas round last year. You know, uh, had had um, fallen sick or, or, or went on holiday for an extended period, and you said, "Tom, would you mind just coming in, helping out with this round?" And they're raising fifty million, and they were they were on twenty. If I'd gone around to all their prospective investors saying, uh, "We're on twenty, and you know, we, we're we're hoping to get over, the, uh, uh, we're, we're we're confident we'll get there in the end, but but um, you know, we, we're not we're not quite um, we're not quite halfway yet." That would probably have killed the entire round, and you'd lost the twenty. Whereas when you're over halfway, there is something magical that happens, which is that you're going to close and you're over halfway wow. and the, the, the wins, wins in your sales, and it's amazing that so so every round've I've run, we have not talked openly about where we are until we've reached just over half, and then you advertise you, you, you disclose that you're on over half and then the whole thing the, the, the final half is like 10 percent of the effort. So it's really about aiming to get just over halfway there. And then thereafter, provided you've got enough conversations live, you will your chance of success radically improve, radically improve. And then you can break that down. So you say, I need to get to 51%. Well, to get there, I need to get to 26%. And to get 26%, I need to get to you know, a, a much smaller figure. Uh, and, and it's all about setting up your cornerstone. So you need one small initial investor who you can use as a sort of proof of, of um, support and interest. You then leverage that to then get on a few more investors. Then you leverage them to get a few more on. Then you leverage them to get a few more on. Eventually, you find yourself halfway. You then say, right, we're at 51%. We're closing. This is the deadline. We've got momentum. And, and the perception of momentum is is just it's just so important. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's something that we've used now with each round, and um, it's served us well.
1: Wow, I, I, that's absolutely fascinating, uh, Tom. Th- thanks for sharing that with me. I, I've never heard the journey described such as that, and I, I love the uh, practical advice that you've provided there for anyone thinking of of going into this wholeheartedly, or anyone anyone going through it that might be um, str- struggling at, at the moment, Tom. So thanks for that. So, Tom, I, w- I would I would like to I would like to get on to your um your company and your technology company, alvius just for the benefit of our audience, Tom. Would you mind describing the challenges and solutions that your platform and technology provides for? Yes, yes, absolutely.
2: So um, we have fundamentally two um, systems, two platforms, the uh, VMS and TPS. So VMS will be is, is a known acronym uh, in the market. I mean, some people listening to this, I'm sure, will know probably more than I do about VMSs. Uh, so it's a vendor management system, and it is the machinery uh, which is used to um, manage typically high volumes of temporary workers. So that is running from from the from the process of allocating individuals against shifts, or creating those shifts, creating those shifts in the first place, allocating individuals against those shifts, and then through the process of um, time cheating those those people, uh, processing invoices, and, and indeed payroll off the back of. Off the back of those timesheets, um, so it's kind of a it's kind of a financial system in lots of ways. Uh, it's sort of an accounting system yes. in lots of ways, but it's also for managing vendors. So that is um, the agencies that supply into an MSP a uh, managed service um, program. So fundamentally, a uh, very very important bit of technology. It's dare I say it, not that exciting as a as a technological proposition, but um, it's one of those things which I think it's all about just doing the job really well um it's about uh, uh, that, that that's sort of fundamentally how we how we see vms that's the machine then the the second system is tps talent pooling system and whereas um the vms is an engine the tps is um well it's something altogether different um it's not really for processing it's for finding the people and it comes one stage earlier in the journey so it's about uh, identifying individuals to, to do the work rather than facilitating them doing the work. yeah so TPS stands for talent pooling system and this is this is you know this is the the, the bit of kit that came out of the um, B2c legacy that, that I described earlier yeah and this is about enabling organizations to direct source to build up a community of individuals um, And now typically it is one organization but it may be a f- maybe a small number group together. From which they can recruit as and when they have the need. So instead of them, you know, constantly going out to uh, expensive channels to find people when they need them, uh, they can um, first of all see: well, do we know anyone? Do we know anyone already um, who who would fit the bill? And if we do, for heaven's sake, let's hire them because that makes a lot more sense. And organisations al- already do this and have done this, you know, forever. I mean, you know, take my old company PwC; it was constantly the case that. Uh, there was a reward system set up for anyone who referred someone in who who then got a job. And that's, I think, a pretty sensible and common approach. Um, yes. So the firm, in effect, was saying there, you know, who do we as an organization know? Let's see if we can hire them first. Makes a lot of sense. But invariably, it's like that. It's, you know, it's 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 a, a small spreadsheet here. It's a list of people in someone's head over there, et cetera, et cetera. It's not organized and it's not sort of um, systematized. Um, and so what RTPS does is allow organizations to build their own communities of, and I use the word community very loosely here, I don't actually mean that in uh, really. I, I, yes. I, I should, uh, I should <laughs> these people aren't interacting with one another. Um, <laughs> so so I, should, I should check myself on that subject really. uh, Build, you know, uh, groups, databases, um, uh, resources of, of individuals that they can that they can use um to fill their positions as and when they need to um and it's always supplementary to quote a supply chain so to agencies to other channels it's always supportive uh, alongside them it will never be the solution that that solves everything but if you can cover you know 5 10 15 maybe even 50 60 percent of your roles with your own direct supply pool your own talent pool then you're doing very well and um you know there will be financial savings off the back of that. Obviously, that's 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 important. But there are other benefits as well. There are there are um you know community benefits. So a lot of our our, our customers um, or our indirect customers are um are, are local authorities in the UK, and they very often would much rather hire someone who lives in their area and you know maybe even pays their taxes than someone from outside and. Our platform allows them to attract and look after and, and nurture and curate um, these pools of people who are in their in their immediate area, um, and and that has sort of social benefits uh, to it.
1: Yeah, and and I love what you guys are doing, Tom. I've I've always got a a long standing, I suppose, interest and almost love for the talent pool and and uh, talent marketplaces, yeah. um, given that that was part of my background, some. 11 years ago or so. And I, yeah. I, I think with um, some of the topics we're going to discuss shortly, there's a really great place for technologies like yours, Tom. And I think probably we're at the bottom of what I would describe and uh, what could be described as the adoption curve for talent pool uh, technology. So there's uh, the good news, I suppose, for yeah. you and, and providers like you is that there's a, a long way to go in terms of adoption, which is great because you can yeah. start, start to build that momentum that you spoke about earlier, Tom. So, I'm really delighted to hear about your product and and uh, your your platform and your technology. And I know our listeners will too. Tom, I, we're 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 in the midst of um, I, I think looking across the OECD, the average um, unemployment is about four four point two percent. So uh, as yeah. I understand yeah. it, a crude measurement of full employment is anything less than five percent. And I think if we look at uh, the Western labor markets, such as the United States, Ireland, Netherlands, Germany, UK, as well. Um, they're pretty much um, not the tightest they've ever been, but um, certainly uh, in recent mm-hmm. history, they're, they're they're at a full employment. And then you, you've still got um, companies hiring hand over fist, right? And th- this phenomenon mm-hmm. has been described as a talent talent scarcity crisis, the labor market yeah. paradox, by Bloomberg and yeah. and various other uh, publications, but. I suppose, it, it, to distill it down in simplest terms, Tom, where have all the people gone, right? And then, yeah. <laughs> where the I hell are you. they? Right, where the hell are they? right? So what has happened? Is it's, it demographics? Is it migration? Is it, what is it? And how can we, how, how can technologies like yours potentially solve for some of this challenge? Well,
2: rather like the, um, the, the fact that, 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 that agencies have, have persisted. I mean, the first thing to say is, isn't it incredible and totally extraordinary and baffling? Yes. and um it's like it's like the kind of movements that you would expect to see over a decade happen now every ten months yes uh, in 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 the market and the kind of bizarre you know inversions of 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 economic logic <laughs> apparently uh, are like every uh, twice a year you you hear of something that just doesn't apparently make any sense whatsoever you know would we leave the EU net migration goes up employment goes is is through the roof and then and then the pandemic hits and then you just thought there would be an economic sort of big economic hit off the back of that which would then translate into jobs being lost but it doesn't really happen in many respects the exact opposite happens yes um the following year and uh yeah it's you know it's it's totally odd and i I actually feel that the market's currently about as balanced as being in the last five years Mm. in fact you know probably the best place it's been for the last and even and that includes pre-pandemic um things are the the balance on, on either side is is definitely improving. So yeah it's 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 a totally it's a totally amazing time to kind of be in this market and, and be watching yeah. it carefully because it is it is um it is very very odd. As as for um what we do about it um and that and of course that's broken down at a company level and then also at a little, yes. sort of national level. Um, but in many respects the two are very intertwined. There's, there's a, obviously a number of angles, but, but I yes. think that ultimately it's about expanding it's about expanding the, the number of, of, of the, the size of the, of, the, of the pool that we have, the size of the, not just the talent pool that any company has access to, but, but um, you know all companies have access to. And that means there need to be one or more of more people uh, in the country, or more of the people in the country doing more work. It just simply has to be one of those two things, so it means more immigration. But of course, politically speaking, um, uh, you know that's that's certainly the current environment. That's with the with with the um, target set by uh, Rishi uh, that that's that's um, quite difficult to achieve. I think. I don't know if Rishi's one of your listeners. He probably is, so maybe he he could. um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, But um, what gets me actually very excited. That, without wading into kind of political territory it is um, the subject of all the generations coming back into the workplace or yes. re- remaining in the workplace and uh, the subject of basically parents but mainly you know realistically mothers having access to more flexible employment opportunities. Uh, I think those two groups are very uh, represent an enormous amount of potential um for uh, for individual companies and for the for the country, um, I think I, I think what I hear from speaking anecdotally to, to people in those two categories, but also from having employed people in those two categories, and particularly in the in the um, the, the 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 parents one, there's an enormous amount of energy and keenness to be employed and to yes. do work uh and i you know i don't i don't think people when they reach a lot of people anyway when they reach time and age are desperate to go and uh do nothing i think a lot of them would love to do work but they want to do work that's a they can do um and b which is kind of suitable for their you know their 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 lifestyle and 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 the other responsibilities they may wish to take on uh and similarly you know Parents who who take time off, and I mean, you know, multiple years to look after children, are often fearful of losing their skills and being left behind uh, in the work in, in the workforce or by the workforce, and and really want to keep their eye in. And this is just not just about money and you know career development, but it's also about identity. I mean, yes, you know, a lot of mothers do not just want to be mothers; they want to be. The professional, successful individual they were when they were twenty, whatever they were 20, 25 or so, um, and they want to continue doing that thing, and they want to continue in that career, and that's a big part of their identity. And you know, when they, when they, when they, um, uh, they, they, they go into being a full time parent, that is often lost. And I've had a lot of conversations, and I, I say it, I've employed a lot of people in that exact position, and what I've heard again and again is, um. It's really great to have this in my life um, alongside my childcare responsibilities. So, I just think there's a huge potential um, in the country uh, in those two categories. Um, but taking advantage of of those groups is not straightforward. I should, I should rephrase that: taking advantage of those groups, or taking advantage of that of that that opportunity, is not straightforward. And what I mean by that is. This, taking the, the um, uh, sort of parent model, say that say people work who, who, who are available to work in aggregate, the equivalent of you know, two to three days a week. Um, invariably, they do not want to actually work two to three days a week, like Monday and Thursday or whatever. What they want to do is do about 16, 20 hours of work through the course of the week. Yes. Right? Uh, and they can absolutely commit to a meeting at 2 o'clock on Wednesday, and they can absolutely f- commit to a meeting at 9am on Friday. That's not, not a problem, providing they have notice. And also, they can guarantee that if their phone rings and they don't pick it up, they will call that person back within you know, a couple of hours. But they may make that call from the car on the way to pick up some children from school, or they may make the call from outside the supermarket. And there are a lot of jobs where that's totally fine, and technology makes that more than fine it makes it increasingly fine but there are a lot of jobs where that just doesn't work Uh, and we have to kind of accept that so i think the key is you know when when we've done this in the past as an organization we have had roles where we absolutely love having people who are part-time and who work totally flexible hours and then we have other roles where it's absolutely not that's not the model we work with because it just doesn't make any sense uh and i think we have to be honest and straightforward about this, there are jobs which basically can't be done very well part-time. That's, yes. That's the bottom line. And there are jobs which can be done extremely well part-time. Uh, and we have to accept that and um, try and ensure that the people who want to work part-time are equipped to do the right jobs. Um, that's that's my view on that.
1: Mm. I think those two categories of, of persons that you mentioned are is spot on tom wholeheartedly agree and i feel that they they've often sadly been overlooked but um it, it's great it's great that we and you are considering those those people and getting them back into the labor market because even if i look at my old mother my mom is um my mother is 64 um she retired um i suppose early when she was 55. And she was so bloody bored. And, you know, she has her master's in law. She was a, a quality lawyer, human rights lawyer. And, mm-hmm. and um, she was like, screw this. I want to go back. And now she's back uh-huh. working four days a week. And she bloody loves it because she was... As a lawyer. Yeah. And she's bored out of her mind. She was bored out of her mind. She's she's no longer. Um, she's really engaged and energized. And she's actually working for the uh, government in uh, Northern Ireland. But, she, you know, she's just, just one example. But even if I look at my grandfather's, uh, one of whom is still still alive, um, but both of them um, worked right up until their eighties. Now they were both uh, self employed entrepreneurial fellows, but. They they just didn't want to give up the ghost, and they firmly believed if you if you stop work, you're dead. And, yeah, and, if, and the one that is right. dead, that sort of did, did transpire,
2: but that that transpired to be true. Yeah, yeah, so they did yeah that, 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 I have a grandparent where that, that exact narrative applied as well. <laughs> it's, yeah,
1: it's, it's funny. It's funny now. I look back. Of course, it was sad at the time. But but Tom, I did have a question. Though it, it strikes me though, although there are categories that, of course, we should rightly look at with tightening up of. Immigration in the most uh, economies, right? Um, yeah. That's becoming increasingly problematic because it's 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 fueling the fire of this uh, labour market paradox, right? So you've got that, yeah, you know, and then you've got the declining demographic, right? So if you look at the European Union since roughly 1965 to to present day, the, the birth rate's actually halved, right? It's halved in that um, in that period, right? We're quite simply not producing enough people. By yep. by 2100, right, so fair enough, is a long time horizon, right? The population in China is roughly going to be half of what it is today. The population of Nigeria mm-hmm. Nigeria is roughly going to increase fivefold, right? So I suppose, yes, yes. So what you've got is you've got talent emerging, right, in emerging economies and markets that can't get in, right? They're not going to be welcomed, mm-hmm. unfortunately, or uh, depend on your viewpoint, unfortunately, into the United States or UK or other labor markets because they're saying, hey, listen, We don't want immigrants in our country. We don't care if you're bloody Mm -hmm. skilled up the bloody wazoo. It's irrelevant. You ain't coming in. And we don't want you here. So my question is, do you feel that there's a role for matching talent outside a country's borders? So I'm talking about young, emerging, skilled talent that can do an amazing job, but they can do that job remotely. Uh, Any thoughts?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, you actually had a guest on this podcast a few, a couple of episodes back, yeah. who was, who was very clued up about, um, about population demographics or statistics, which I, which I'm not, and was quoting, you know, Nigerian, um, figures around Nigeria and so on, which were was fascinating. Um, so I won't, I won't sort of tread over that territory, but, but, um, I am, as it happens, sort of in a way outside of work, although I'd love to marry the two at some point, yeah. a big Africa file. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I, yeah, my wife and I, we love, we love, uh, We've been to Africa quite a number of times, and we ah. love going there and, and um, exploring and meeting people and learning about the place. And um, it's you know it's a very obviously an immensely complex continent. Yes, of um, you know, not even a country, uh, not even close. Uh, and with a massive variety of, of people, and and you know perhaps most obviously above all, uh, immensely complex mesh of problems. Yes, with a lot of moments where. Uh, Opportunity seems to emerge, and, and 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 chinks of light kind of uh, emerge, and it seems very exciting. But there are structural challenges which are which are vast. But there are none. There is nonetheless a, 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 a rapidly growing uh, African middle class yeah. um, throughout the continent, <laughs> uh, and um, that means a, a, an increasing number of very very skilled individuals. And the point which I, the very simple point which I constantly Make and feel uh, about Africa is that it's on the same time zone as us. Uh, you know, it's on the same time zone as Europe, and this is like the most important thing about Africa for any European is that they operate on the same time zone. Agreed. And it and the advantage that gives that I, I would love that to give Africa uh, and and us indeed and our, the opportunity we have therefore to work with um, African nations, particularly West Africa. Again, with the UK, given the time zone, um, is immense. Yes, uh, and I would absolutely love. I mean, I would love one day uh, to set up some kind of agency business, which involves having a big pool of talent based in in, in an African nation, perhaps Senegal, which which my wife and I went to last yes. year. and Absolutely loved, um, and and also seems to have a pretty good base of is a it's very stable and B it has a very a good base of, of very very capable and qualified individuals um an agency model where yeah there, there's a pool of talent based in based in Africa um, at, at servicing clients um, in Europe and I think that would be awesome and you know to think that we do this it already in in to a massive extent but you know in countries in Asia where we the result is that these people wake up at or go to bed at totally ludicrous hours yes and pretty painful for them. Um it, it seems kind of structurally mad um to me. Now I understand why it happens and it's because of prices and capability and all that kind of stuff globally, but 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 just at a very rudimentary level, being on the same time zone has to be has to be significant. Um and I would love to see that that materialise. Yeah.
1: Um, here here here. I'm fully fully subscribed to what you've outlined there for sure, Tom. So Tom, I, I, j- I just wanna look at if we may Artificial intelligence, of course, it's nothing new, right? Mm -hmm. Although it's certainly been very well publicized, particularly in the last um, 14-month period with the, um, I suppose, not the advent of ChatGP, but I suppose the the publication and the furore around it. And, of of course, jobs displacement through technology is, is nothing new either. But I suppose my question is as follows, Tom. Are you concerned about artificial intelligence uh, potential large-scale impact on jobs and specifically jobs displacement.
2: Well, I, I, my my view on, on AI, and this is I should I should say this is a subject where um, really Andrew, my business partner, is much but well, he is uh, certainly more significantly more authoritative, authoritative than, than than I am. Um, but 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 I'll sort of keep to the territory that I know. My view broadly is that anyone who bets against the capability of AI, I I don't think it will be able to do this, or I don't think it will be able to do that, is, I mean, an idiot. Uh, it, it's almost, they're almost certainly going to be proven wrong at some point. Yes, But equally, uh, anyone who with any degree of assurance makes any bets based on our response to AI, how we're going to actually use this stuff, would fall into the same category. Again and again, we see claims about the limits of AI's capability being proven wrong, and it happens like week by week, almost. this stuff is advancing so fast. But already the the early predictions about how AI is going to be adopted, they're already wrong. I mean, five <laughs> minutes into the journey, they're wrong.. Uh, right. uh, and that, that's the bit that's really interesting. So my baseline assumption is it will be able to do it will be able to do absolutely everything, I and mean, it have a ludicrous capability. yes. But how will we use it, and how will we want to use it? And it's not just, you know, it's important to remember that, that um, not only do we uh, use technology in ways that we didn't expect, but very often we actively shun technology. You know, there, there are businesses in the UK now which, which offer, and all over the world, I'm sure, which offer, you know, cabin holidays. In fact, I, I know a guy who runs one. Uh, where you can get away and live in a woodland right. you know for a few days or you know just un- unplug entirely and 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 um uh you know no phones and all that kind of stuff sure uh, and indeed no you know maybe no hot, or no not no hot water and certainly no big comfortable sofas or TVs I mean to someone in 1900 that is total insanity <laughs> right I mean what on earth <laughs> it's it would it's be, uh, be, be completely beyond comprehension it's not it's not just odd it's not just I would rather not do that it's like why would anyone ever do that? <laughs> you know, it's It's completely absurd. Uh, and yet here we are doing it. yeah, so similarly to 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 have firm predictions about how we're going to use AI for our, for our benefit uh, uh, you know as as a, as a society, it, I think you're immediately on very dangerous territory, and I think not only will we use it in ways that we don't expect, but I think we will actively shun it. Even where the capability is there, even where it's like no, you have the option to spend the entire weekend on a sofa watching t v no, I'd rather not I'd rather sit in a cold room in the woods. People will actually you know people take that that option similarly you know you have the option to run this business or or to to do this task in in one minute no i'll do, I'll take a day for it. thank you, I'll take a day over it, and people will start to yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if people started to to actually make choices like that so so I think that uh, you know, I, I, my answer is kind of I, I, I'm just not going to stray into the territory of making predictions about labour market displacement. I think that almost any prediction like that is is guaranteed to be to be incorrect. There's all the obvious points which everyone makes all the time about um, you know, technological revolutions. It's always evolution, not revolution. These things happen slowly. Things evolve. Of course, there will be a lot of jobs that disappear, but there will be new jobs created. I mean, these are all sort of obvious points, but but uh, and I'm sure they are directionally all true. Um, but my wider point is, um, if we to dwell on it more than for a few minutes, I think we will guarantee to be entering into territory where we say things that are just flat out completely and utterly wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think uh, we'll be entering into the period of, uh, potentially dangerous uh, speculation there, Tom, but, uh, Tom, <laughs> but as we bring our conversation to uh, a close, Tom, I would like if... to get some of your predictions if you're comfortable with it in terms of. What, if any, predictions in relation to the future work would you like to make?
2: Well, um, I think we can probably reference a few of our, our earlier discussions here. Yes, um, I sincerely hope that the untapped talent pools, which I mentioned, and I'm sure there are others besides, start to play a big role in the wider labour market. I also sincerely hope, and on the basis of what I see today fully expect, that direct sourcing or talent pooling will also uh over time and this is a multi year um, progression yes. will play alongside other other channels um uh, an increasingly significant role uh, in the market um so i think I think from a sort of supply side that's that's a big narrative I'm fascinated to see where we get to with the rebalancing on remote work, and uh, I think probably the, wor- the the word I use there balance is. Uh, ultimately where we'll get to that that, that this, we're sort of swinging back in one direction now but um uh i'm sure that you know flexible working will become uh, a, a major a major theme no. so there, there's a there's a few um there's a few broad points um but I, I i think we've certainly got the opportunity to look forward to a world where work is all in all better more interested more interesting rather and, uh, and especially in a world where work is not absolutely necessary for our survival or our sort of prosperity as a, as a society, increasing amounts of energy is thrown into devising work because we understand at long last that work is important for our own identity and for our own you know, uh, well-being as individuals. And designing work that um, optimizes for that Uh, which is not something we're sort of still yet really actively thinking about, I don't think. But but there is a long-term potential for us to get to the place where that is a a major theme and um, (laughs) there'll be various convulsions on the way. But but I hope that that is a sort of future we might look forward to. Well, I I think that's
1: a a very nice and optimistic way to close our conversation, Tom. And I, I must admit, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I've loved hearing... Your thoughts yes, so. and um, your opinions on on all the topics that we've discussed, and um, Tom, I really am grateful for your time. I know you, I know it's incredibly busy for you and your and your company and your and your um, and Andrew and the rest of your team at the moment. But Tom, where is the best place for our audience to reach out and um, speak with you guys in relation to your your technology products at uh,
2: Alpheus? Well, um, I think possibly LinkedIn is the answer. I'm I'm fairly active on LinkedIn um and if you send me a direct message there then i uh, i should pick it up at least uh, but otherwise if you if, if you if anyone emails the the um the central email address at, at alvius i think it's contact at alvius.com and and just says uh, fyi uh, for me then um uh, uh that that should come to come to me as well but yeah very very happy to have discussions with uh, any listener who who would like to pick up on these points or anything else besides
1: wonderful well tom wishing you and your company the the best for 2024 and, and thanks ever so much for your time i've really enjoyed our conversation thank you tom
2: pleasure thank you colin thank okay. you cheers
1: goodbye tom bye-bye
0: thank you for listening to the open talent report with conor heaney if you found this podcast informative and engaging make sure you subscribe tell your friends and follow us on all your favorite streaming platforms